Well, I invite you tonight to take a look at Psalm 37. In Psalm 37, we come to an acrostic, uh, 22 different parts, 22 different letters from the Hebrew alphabet. We'll begin um, each of the sections as we look at Psalm 37. And what sets Psalm 37 apart is it's a psalm, it's a wisdom psalm. kind of falls along the lines of the Proverbs. And there's a lot of things in there to, to guide us to prayerfully uh, open up our eyes to the to the things, the way God would have us be, what God would have us do, how God would have us live and and breathe and have our being. And so as we take a look at it, he begins with this phrase, do not fret because of evildoers. That word fret literally means don't get all heated up. Don't be a hothead. Don't, uh, don't get yourself all wound up don't get wrapped around the axle you guys get the meaning it's uh it's more than the concept of don't worry the the concept of of don't worry really is not involved it's it's like the idea where worry takes you where you get where you get yourself all worked up and so he's saying not to do that okay so don't get worked up don't get all heated don't get all hot under the collar nor be envious of the workers of iniquity for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and withered like the green herb. Now here's the goal that we want to try to, to, to grapple with. We want to try to hold on to. This, this is kind of the, the concept hopefully we can hold. Sometimes when we look at people living their lives who aren't following the Lord, they're, they're not trying to be obedient. They're not trying to, to live a life that pleases God or honors God. And we look at them and, and good things happen to them. And, and when we look at that, we see those, those good things, we can start to lose heart. In fact, David talks about it more than one occasion, about almost losing heart when he saw people who weren't following God doing well. And, and him, he looked at his life, and I'm living in a cave. I'm following Jesus and trying to do the things God wants me to do, and I'm trying to be obedient to Him, and my life is a mess. But that dude over there, man, he's not even trying. He's got a good life. Things are going good for him. And we get ourselves, we get our, our focus distorted because we're not thinking about the future. See, when God calls us and God, uh, uh, His desire for us to follow Him, when Jesus said, come and follow me, we oftentimes forget where He was going. You guys remember where He was going, right? He wasn't headed to, you know, a treasure or a, a big pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. It was not all that stuff that he was that he was scooping up. He was headed to the cross. He's going to die. In fact, he says the same thing, right? To to you who would come after me, those who would follow me, you must do what? Deny yourself. Take up what? Your cross and follow me. So the the idea. Nowhere in that concept of Jesus saying, follow me, does he say, if you follow me, everything's going to be easy. And we're going to see that as we work our way through the psalm, that there's not the promise of ease, but there is the promise of future hope and glory. And when we get our eyes off of the prize of where we're going, we lose heart. Uh, I don't know if anybody's ever had to run uh, a long ways. I unfortunately did some time in the Marine Corps. That's the last time I run. I said, it, I, I'm actually going to hopefully go bear hunting in a couple of weeks. And if a bear chases me, I am not running. <laughs> I do not like to run at all. But if you, we were running, I remember one time we went out, we're in boots and utes. So we're wearing our combat boots 
and our utilities, our camis, and we're on a five-mile beach run. You guys ever run on the beach? I don't know if you can fully grasp the horror of running on the beach. The sand is soft. Every two steps, maybe you took one. And five miles is a long ways to do that. So we're running, and if you couldn't keep your eye focused on, on getting to the end, and all you could think about was the guy in front of you, you want to quit. You want to give up. You want to stop. Forget it. This is not worth it. This is dumb. I don't want to do this. Of course, upon doing that, things got worse for you than they would if you just kept going. And the idea, we see the same thing in our, in our walk with Christ, in our walk with the Lord. We get our eyes on anything else but the prize. The prize for me was this is going to end. If I keep going, it ends. If I stop, it takes longer. You guys get that? If I'm running, i got to go five miles, and I stop every 30 seconds and pout and whine and cry, it's going to take me a lot longer to get to five miles. Or if I just say, got to keep my eyes focused, five miles, let's go, got to get there. It ends faster. It's over. And we have to remember the goal of our life. All throughout Scripture, God calls us to run the race, right? Looking into Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, right? Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He endured because he kept his eyes focused on you and I. We're his prize. And if we keep our eyes focused on him, then we won't fret. and We won't get all envious and hung up about what's happening for them. Because we'll remember, this is the best it's going to be for them. It's the best. It was interesting, I, somebody was sharing with me about a conversation they had had and, uh, uh, about their, their mom and dad were split up and, and their mom had gone after uh, dad for, for child support, taking care of child support. And, and um, the, the, the child went to his mom wanted him to stop. Hey, st- stop chasing dad, dad can't make it, you know, he's, he's not able to. To catch up. And she says, man, he owes. All this back time, he needs to pay. And uh, the boy said, yeah, but all dad's got to look forward to is hell. He don't have any relationship with Christ. He don't know nothing. Just let it go. And when when the concept changed from the idea of, well, he's getting away with something he shouldn't get away with, to seeing the future... It wasn't so hard to be hung up on that. It was easy to let it go. To let it go. And still today, there's, there's prayer and, and hope that one day that guy's going to come to the Lord. Holy, completely, utterly. Maybe as a result of, of what took place. So we have to keep our eyes on the prize. Not on the people around us who seem to be getting things better. Or seem to be experiencing more. Seems like everything's working out for them. So the first thing he tells them in verse 1 and 2, don't fret, don't get all hot under the collar, don't get all heated up, don't be envious, because think about where they're going. The grass is cut down. Don't be envious of the grass, is getting mowed. It's not always going to look like that. It's not always going to be like this. So don't, don't look at that. But then he's going to give us several things to do positively. Look what he says in verse 3. He begins with the first one. So trust in the Lord. And do good. Trust in the Lord. And the idea is he finishes the thought. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. If you consider that in light of 
of the book of Ruth. You guys remember the book of Ruth? We were there like a couple of weeks ago when we were going through the Old Testament before we parked in Psalms for so long. If you flip, just flip to the left, all the way back to uh, Judges, and then turn right, and you'll be at Ruth. But in Ruth, chapter 1, verse 1, we see somebody that uh, that had a hard time uh, holding on to that the idea, what God wants, what, what He's asking for, for those who trust in Him. Look at Ruth 1.1. 1, 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So what's that saying? Things got hard, right? So people who are in the land, in, in, in the land of, literally they're in Bethlehem, which means the house of bread. So they're in the house of bread. There's a famine in the land. They, things are hard. They don't have food. And it says, uh, uh, a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. This is the opposite of trusting in the Lord and his faithfulness. Because literally, he leaves the house of bread to go to a place the Psalms call the toilet bowl of the world. So I want you to see the picture. What happens when, uh, when he leaves, when Elimelech leaves, he, he leaves and he goes, the scripture says he, he leaves the house of bread to go to the wash pot. The wash pot instead of staying in the house of bread. Why? Because it was hard there, and things were a little bit difficult, and he started looking around and thinking, other guys got it better. Look at those guys. Even though they live in the, the toilet bowl, I'm going to go stay with them because they got food. They got what they're... They got what they, so the immediate needs can be fulfilled there. So he went. And if you know the story, you ought to know what it cost him. He died, and both his sons died. And the only one who's left is Naomi who picked up his, her two sons, picked up two Gentile brides, one who leaves her and one who stays. And that woman's name is Ruth. Becomes a great-great-grandmother of David, who ultimately is writing this psalm. And he's telling us to, to rather than lose heart, rather than look at what other people have or what's going on for other people, he's saying, trust in the Lord and do good. Stay here and trust in His faithfulness that God will give what we need. Trusting in His provision. Trusting He's going to fulfill it. So the first thing He tells, okay, don't get all hot under the collar. Don't be envious. Okay, we're not going to do that, but we're going to trust in the Lord. And then the second thing in verse 4, delight yourself also in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. To me, Psalm 37.4 is one of the, the main anchors of faith. If we are going to enjoy the, the relationship that God wants us to have with Him, then we have to comprehend that concept. Delight yourself in the Lord. That word delight literally carries the idea of treasure. It's where I get the whole concept that we have to... The Lord Jesus Christ has to be our treasure. He needs to be our desire, where we, where we focus our, our hopes and, and prayers and the struggle for us in getting our eyes off and seeing the people around us and losing heart and wanting to give up is whenever that changes, when that desire of our heart shifts to something else. When it shifts to our job, when it shifts to our, our husband or our wife, when it shifts to our children then in all those situations, we are losing the ability to be the best person we can be because we've lost that 
anchor that is set in the Jesus Christ. It's that relationship with Christ and our desire for Him that sets the tone for all other relationships. So if I neglect that, I'm going to be less than what I could be if that was right. If I had that treasure, that concept in me. Flip over to to Romans chapter 6, verse 12. We'll just look at it real quick. In Romans, uh, in Romans chapter 6, you remember Paul's laying out the concepts for justification by faith. And, and uh, when he comes to Romans 6, most of you will be familiar with the beginning of it. It says, uh, um, where, where sin abounds, grace superabounds, right? God's ability to overcome the frailties in our life, the struggles in our life, the, the faulty desires in our life is greater than any of our desires. But when we look at verse 12, there's something very interesting that he lays out for us. He says, therefore, in light of the fact, okay, so let's back up a little bit, in light of the fact that that uh, we have died with Christ, and so we believe we're going to live with Him, and we know Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion, it's not in charge of us, for the death he died, he died once for all, but the life he lives, he lives unto God. So he calls us in verse 11, he says, Reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then in verse 12 he says, Therefore, in light of that, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. Do not let sin reign in your body. Don't let sin sit on the throne and control your desire. That's the word lust. Your desire. In other words, the point is to seat firmly in our hearts, in that place of control in our life, what sits on the throne, what reigns, what rules is not sin, but is Jesus Christ. That He's that treasure. And when He's that treasure, whatever is the treasure of your heart controls your desires. That's what He told us in Romans 6. That's what He's telling us all the way back in Psalm 37.4. So that's the point that I got to focus on. What is it that I am delighting in? What is my, where's my desire focused? Because the more I can lay hold of what, what Christ Jesus has for me, the more solid my life's going to be. I'm not going to be hot around the collar. I'm not going to be envious of the lost and those whose lives here look like they're getting away with stuff because I know where that life ends. But instead, I'm choosing to have my faith and trust in Jesus Christ and to make Him my goal, my treasure. He's the treasure. And the promise is then that He gives you the desires of your heart. Now, here's where people get this twisted up. Sometimes it's hard for people to read English and they think when they come to this, if I do this for Jesus, then He gives me everything I want. Isn't that what it says? It says He'll give me the desires. So I, I desire... A new Harley, 21-inch apes. I'd like to have the the, the heritage soft tail again, but to be honest, I, I, street glide will be okay. You know, I'm um, I'm not too uptight with it. And so, if I truly delight in the Lord, then I'm going to get a, a, a new hog, right? Is that how it works? Yeah, the Bible says that what sits on the throne controls the desires. When sin's on the throne, my desire might be for something I shouldn't have. Or something somebody else has. Or something that, that I need to stay away from. But when Christ is on the throne, then He controls my desires. 
So when I delight in Him, He places godly desires in my heart. So I want to do what He wants me to. Isn't that kind of our goal? I mean, if we're following Jesus and we want to be who He wants us to be, that our goal is to treasure Him, and as we treasure Him, we're able to move forward? Think of Matthew. Matthew chapter 6 talks about, uh, seek ye first what? And what happens? All these other things will be added unto you. If you remember anything from Matthew 6, what he's talking about is all that stuff everybody's worried about. Food and clothes and what I'm going to do and how I'm going to do it and how am I going to get there and all that stuff. And the Lord says, don't worry about all that stuff. Rather, focus on me and our relationship. Focus on me. Allow me to be your treasure. And all that other stuff will happen. It'll all happen. And if we can learn to be okay with how it happens, all the better. See, the big key for Paul was to learn whether I am abased or whether I abound in all things that I'm able to be contented in what God gives me. Can we find that? Will we place that contentment in Him? And that's what he's telling us here in the second thing he tells us. Delight yourself in the Lord And He will give you the desires of your heart. The Bible tells us to lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven, right? Not on earth. Why does the Bible say not to lay up treasures on earth? What happens to the treasure on earth? Moths eat it. Rust eats it. Gets destroyed. Thieves break in and steal. Right? You guys remember? But the things in heaven, nothing happens to those things. So that treasure, what is that treasure? That treasure is... Jesus, it is him and delighting in him and, and, and looking unto him and holding fast to him and keeping our focus on him so we can run the race he wants us to run. Now, verse five has a third thing he wants us to do. Don't fret. Don't get hot under the collar. Don't get all uptight. He says, but rather trust in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. And verse five, commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him. Commit your way. Your way is literally a a Hebrew idiom speaking of your entire life. Everything you are or are ever going to be, commit it all to Him. All to Him. When Jesus came, He said, He said, if you want to follow Me, you have to forsake everything. All. And when he says that, you have to forsake all, it means you're taking everything in your life. What I'm going to be, my dreams, my desires, the job I want, the school I want to go to, the things I want to own. I'm taking all the stuff that I'm ever going to be, and I'm putting it all on Jesus. My whole life. Commit your whole life to him. I don't want to have eyes that get focused on what's happening with everybody else. I want to keep my eyes on Christ. So how do I do that? I trust in the Lord. I delight in the Lord. And I commit my life to Him. Everything that I am, everything that I'm going to be, all that I'm about, I'm going to commit it to Him. I'm going to trust in Him. And the last part of the verse is important. What's it say? And He shall bring it to pass. So we give it to Him... And He will make of our life what our life 
needs to be. Where we're going to find the ability to not be ashamed. That word not to be ashamed in the Hebrew means disappointed. Anybody ever been disappointed in something? Have a dream about something? Lay hold of something and say, man, that was disappointing. I thought that was going to be oh so much more. What the Lord promises is if we lay all that stuff down and give it over to Him, we won't be disappointed in what He makes of our life. We just commit it to Him and allow Him to do that perfect work in and through us. Look at verse 6. What's He going to do? He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Now here's what I want you to grasp from this, okay? He's saying, commit your life and, and give it all to God and He's going to make it come to pass. But then He defines what that means. What does it mean that He's going to make it come to pass? Just look what it says. It says, He shall bring forth your righteousness. That's the act of sanctification. That means that that Jesus Christ working in your life is changing you from the inside out, from glory to glory. That you're constantly moving forward with Christ. That He's going to do that in you. You've committed your life to Him. He's going to do that work. And then I I want you to see He shall do it. So so it's a process. It's not a the concept is an instant. It's a process. It's a thing that's going to happen to your life. And then your justice will shine. He's saying, just like your righteousness will bring forth light, your justice will shine like the noonday. Now, when does the noonday shine? It's not a trick question. At noon, right? So the noonday shines at noon. So noonday doesn't shine in the morning? No, the whole point of noonday is noonday is noon. Why, why does that matter, Jackie? Because you need to understand that you are waiting for noon. I don't know if you guys wait for noon. I wait for noon. I wake up and I eat breakfast and the very next moment I look forward to is noon. Lunch. Yeah, lunch is coming. Lunch, especially if I know I'm going to have double jalapeno Canadian bacon pizza. Man, that's if you guys haven't had that, whew. oh man, that's good. But it's not on my diet, so I just think about it now. I don't try to eat it. So I look for noon. Now, what do I mean? I mean, when we're looking for justice, when we're looking for God to do that work in our life, to make us righteous as we're struggling with things, we need to realize, just like the day progresses from morning to noon, God's working in our life from the beginning until it's completed. And God's times table is oftentimes much slower than ours. Ever experienced that? I would just like this to be done now, Lord, just poof, and make it go away. But God's less concerned with the end product and more concerned with the process. And because He's careful about the process, He desires that work to be accomplished in the right way, then it's a little slower. And I think that's what He's laying out for us. He's talking about not only the brightness of the light and the beauty of the righteousness, but that there's a period of waiting, looking, for his deliverance, looking for his deliverance. Now, in verse 7, we come to the next one. So not only he doesn't want us to be hot under the collar, he wants us to trust in the Lord, delight in him, commit our life to him, but then the next one, rest. Rest in the Lord. That word rest in the Hebrew literally means a calm surrender. Like laying down your arms, just the idea given, given up to the Lord, surrendering to Him. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently 
for him. That's pretty wild. Why does he say, wait patiently? Does that imply that there's going to be a wait? That it might not happen our way in our time frame? And if we get our eyes on everybody else, we'll start to get hot under the collar. Why is it so good for them? I'm trying to follow the Lord and it's uh, that's not calm surrender. Right? That's something else. Calm surrender just says I'm patiently waiting for God to do His thing. So I'm just going to trust in Him. I'm going to stay in this place where I'm holding on. God will do His work. I just, I just need to stay available, occupied on the Lord. It's not just sleeping at home and, and hoping food magically appears in my mouth. But it's the idea of, of waiting on the Lord. Waiting on Him. Looking unto Him. Looking unto Him, the author and the finisher of our faith, to do the work that He wants to do. And then immediately after that, when He's talking about being patient and looking for the Lord and seeing God work in our life, He says that phrase again, Do not fret. Because as soon as you start talking about patience, one guy's going to say, Whatever you do, don't pray for patience. That's bad advice. <laughs> pray for patience. But you have to know, how's patience? how does patience come? The Bible tells us patience comes by tribulation. Whew. So what's that mean? If it says, rest in the Lord, wait patiently for Him, then that means in the waiting there's going to be tribulation, hardship, difficulty, persecution. I'm going to have times of famine. I'm going to have times of struggle. And the goal is be patient. God's doing a work. Trust in Him. Don't get hot under the collar. Don't let that be the moment that you want to lose focus and run off in some other direction. Don't fret because of him who prospers in his way. Because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger. Forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. So he's laying it out. He's saying, look, here's what you're doing. You start that and you say, okay, I'm going to be patient, God. And and this has been this is a really hard time for me. I'm going through difficult things. I really would like you just to magically transform this so I don't have to do it. But but you're not doing that, so I'm going to be patient. And then I look over there and I see, but but look at that guy. Man, he's out he's drinking every night and partying all the time, and everything comes up roses for him all the time. It's all working out for him. I don't get it. I'm trying to follow you. And if we're honest, we all find ourselves in that place at one time or another. Looking at that guy and we thinking, well, how come I'm trying to do it right and he doesn't even care about it and look at how it's all coming together. And so he lays out for us, look, this guy brings about all that stuff. He's not trying to do it the right way. He does it by bringing wicked schemes to pass. And then his word, God's word to us, cease from anger, forsake wrath, stop being so hot under the collar. Do not fret. It only causes you harm. It only messes with you. It ruins what you're trying to accomplish and what you're trying to do and what you're trying to experience. So we have to be willing to stay away from anger and bitter fruit. That's why I say the, the prize has to stay in my eyes. The prize got to stay there. I got to be looking at, at Christ, looking at Him, not looking at who's got what. 
You guys all remember John at the end of the Gospel of John? Peter gets restored by Jesus. Remember the story? Jesus comes to him and says three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? The encouraging thing about that is literally as Jesus is laying out for him and as Jesus says three times, he uses two different words for love, right? Do you agape me? Do you agape me? Which is a self-sacrificing love. Remember Peter said, oh, these other guys, they might forsake you, but I never will. You guys remember, right? And then, but Peter forsook him. He denied he knew him to his face. In fact, Luke says Jesus looked at him while he said it. I do not know the man. The third time Jesus says to him, do you phileo? Which is a, the, the, the word used for brotherly love. You love me like a brother. Are you my friend? That's why the Bible says Peter was vexed in his heart because the Lord came down to his level and said, do you love me? Do you love me this way? And so Peter responds. See, the other two times Peter responded. He said, Lord, you know I phileo. I phileo. I want to agape, but I don't. I phileo. So Jesus came down to phileo. Peter's disappointed. He's disappointed because I want to agape, but I phileo. I want to do, I want to be up here. My relationship with you, I want it to be up here. But I'm really down here. But Jesus does something interesting to Peter. He tells him, one day you're going to make it. He looks at him and says, Peter, when you were young, you went wherever you wanted to go. In other words, you did what you wanted. But when you're old, men are going to come alongside you and take you places you don't want to go. And John 21 says this, he spoke concerning his death. We know, how did Peter die? He's crucified, right? He's crucified just like Christ. Why? Because he was not willing to forsake Jesus. So the next time when the, when the test comes again, Peter, will you forsake me? Will you give up? Will you only phileo or will you agape? Peter would be willing to agape. He'd die. And when Peter considered that, what Jesus was saying to him, speaking to him about the way he would die, do you remember what he does next? He points over at John. You remember John, the... The disciple that Jesus loved, he points over at John and says, okay, I'm going to die. What's going to happen to him? And the point is, Peter, stop looking at everybody else. That's what Jesus, in essence, what Jesus says to him is, if I want him to live until I return, what's that to you? Are you going to follow me? You got your own road to walk, Peter. You and I, we got our own road to walk. Everybody's road is not the same. Everybody's problems in life and struggles in life are not going to be the same. We got to get over the three-year-old deal about life's not fair. Hopefully by now we figured that out. Right? It ain't fair. Nobody ever promised us fair. But we have a road to walk. What were we promised? Strength for the journey. The fact that he will never forsake you. They would never leave you. That he would never give up on you. They would always be with you on your walk, on your road. And what God is asking for from us is to keep our eyes on him, the prize. And keep walking. Not looking at the wicked who gets away with something. And he's going to tell us in verse 9 why not to. Look, he says, for evildoers shall be cut off. Think about the end. That guy who's, who's getting away with everything now. Every, there's payday someday. 
just go to the end of the book and read chapter 20 and 21. It says, And death and Hades gave up the dead, and all the living and the dead, the great and the poor, all stand before God. And everyone whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life is cast into the lake of fire. That's the end of the wicked. So stop ignoring that. Stop looking about what somebody gets now, here and now. Stop worrying about that. And keep your eyes on the prize. You've got a long ways to go. All the way till we see Jesus face to face. We want to keep going. So evildoers will be cut off. They will face judgment. That word cut off, karat, it means they will face capital punishment. Capital punishment. One day there will be a judgment. But he goes on. See the word but, verse 9, but is always a word of contrast. In contrast to the wicked facing judgment, those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Does that sound familiar? It seems like there's a verse like that. Jesus in the Beatitudes says something about that. You guys remember? Something, uh, somebody inherits the earth. Who? Oh, the meek inherit the earth. So those who wait on the Lord must be the meek, right? Well, let's, let's go on and see if he makes it a little more easy for us to understand. For yet a little while, and the wicked will be no more. And indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. So the wicked are going to pass. There won't be no, there comes a day when there will be no more wicked again, ever. Now, they're, they're still here. They're still, we have those things. We still have to deal. But one day we won't have to. But what's it say in verse 11? Oh, look at that. It looks familiar, huh? Matthew 5, 5 says the same thing. But the meek shall inherit the earth. Now earlier it said, but those who wait on the Lord shall inherit the earth. So if those who wait on the Lord will inherit the earth, and the meek will inherit the earth, what can I bring together from that idea? That the meek are also those who do what? They wait on the Lord. And if we work our way through this, it's, it's like a commentary on who the meek are. What the meek look like. The meek wait on the Lord. The meek, meekness is <clears throat> power under control. That that our abilities, our powers under the control of Almighty God. We seek to do what He wants. It says at the end of verse 11, And they shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. They will have peace. When the meek inherit the earth, we're talking about the kingdom, which I believe is yet to come that we're moving toward that time. And as we're moving toward that time of the kingdom, and we're looking forward to that perfect peace that we find under the the reign of the return of the king, the the real king, Jesus Christ, when he returns and sets up that kingdom, then I know that I'm finishing this race, and as I finish this race, I'm looking forward to a time of perfect peace. Where Jesus says, see, I make all things new. Everything's going to be okay. Whatever, whatever, uh, misjustice isn't a word. Unjustice is not a word either. What, what word am I looking for? Anyway, it, whatever forms of, of injustice. injustice there. I knew there was a word. You're saving me, Noe. Whatever forms of injustice you have experienced in your life are going to be made right one day. One day in Christ. He's going to do all those things. There will be the abundance of peace. Look at verse 12. He's going to start talking now about, about what's going on uh, with, the, with the fact that the Lord is able to understand your situation. Look at it. The wicked plots against the just 
and gnashes at him with his teeth. Now, remember, I told you that's like the dog that you look at and you know is going to bite you. The gnashes at their, at you with their teeth. You guys have seen that, right? Where the dog goes, he's going to, you're getting bit. The other dog just goes, wah, 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 wah. that's not going to bite you. But the gnashing of the teeth, you're getting bit. Better get hoppy. I, I was thinking about making a comment, but I'm not going to. Whenever I pause, I should just stop. The wicked <laughs> plots against the just and gnashes his teeth at him. But what does the Lord do? He laughs at him. The Lord laughs at the wicked who gnashes his teeth. I'm going to destroy him. When ISIS does all their stuff that they're carrying on and all the things they're doing, God is in heaven laughing. What do you mean? God's laughing. They're they're cutting off the heads of Christians. Yeah, they are. What do you think that witness is for the people in the town? How is it that they keep finding Christians to cut the head off? Why don't they all just become Muslim and stop so they don't cut their head off no more? I'll tell you if you want to know. Because their faith is real. And they're watching and they're saying, No, I'm not going to deny my Savior. And so they take their head and they go to the next guy. Are you going to deny? No, I'm not denying my Savior. They cut his head and go to the next guy. They go to the next guy. All the people who are watching are thinking, Man, those people who are losing their head are more real and have more peace and have more faith and have more trust than the guys that are taking the heads. Why do they always have more Christian to cut off their heads? Because there's a witness in that. When the church is persecuted, the blood of the saints is the seed of the church. The church grows. Faith happens. In the beginning of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6, persecution starts and the church blows up. God laughs. You're going to try to destroy my people by cutting off their heads? All you're doing is send them to me. They don't have to be hungry again. They don't have to worry about being hot no more. They suffer for a few moments and then they experience eternal bliss with me. Knock yourself out. You're going to wear out your arm. For more than 2,000 years, they've been trying to extinguish the flame of faith in Jesus Christ. ISIS is not the first people who have done it. And they won't be the last. And they won't be any more successful. It says, when they gnash their teeth, the Lord laughs at him. Why? For he sees his day is coming. The day of the wicked is coming. There will be a day. Judgment day comes for us all. And on that day, all the the showmanship and the, and the cockiness that they may have will be gone. There won't be none of that when they stand before the living God. Especially when they see standing next to them a group of dudes that they took the heads of. Oh, this is going to be a bad day. The Lord laughs because He sees the day. He knows the judgment will come. So the wicked have drawn the sword and they've bent their bow to cast down the poor and the needy and to slay those who are of upright conduct. The idea is He goes, look, God knows what's going on. And the symbols that He used here, drawing the sword and bending the bow, are symbols of strength and the abuse of power. The way it's used... Uh, the sword and the bow are symbols of strength. The way it's used to oppress the poor and to slay the upright are, are contextually point to the abuse of power. 
So you have these guys abusing their power. And literally when it says <clears throat> to slay those who are of upright conduct, it's like um, butchering an animal. That's a pretty good expression of some of the things we've seen on the news. On some of the conduct of, of people around the world. Not just ISIS. Holy cow, you guys forget about Rwanda? You forget about the Sudan? It's been going on for a long time. It just didn't start now. And it has the same effect. It doesn't stop the gospel from going out, man. It speeds it up. People look at him and say, I want a faith like that that looks at a sword and says, no, I'm not changing. Because maybe they don't have a faith like that currently. And they recognize that that is their desire. So he says in verse 15, their sword will enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. Jesus said to Peter, Peter, put away your sword. Don't you know he who lives by the sword dies by the sword? The Lord says, hey, the sword will pierce their own heart. Their bows are going to hit themselves. They're, they're going to the same trap that they set is going to spring on them. The day will come. Everybody will stand before the Lord. And then he, in verse 16, he says, he says, look, I know what's going on. The Lord's saying, I know what's going on. I see what the wicked are doing. I see how they're treating my people. That's why when we come to the book of Revelation, we read about the martyrs that are under the altar. You guys remember that, right? The martyrs who had died for their faith. And they say to Jesus, how long, O Lord, until you're going to avenge us? You remember what the Lord says? A little while longer. When your number is complete. He says to Sardis, who is facing, um, or Smyrna, I'm sorry, Smyrna, who's facing incredible persecution, he says to them, be faithful to death. But he don't say, I'm coming to get you. He don't say, I'm going to come, I'm going to scoop in, and you're not going to have to face it. He don't tell Smyrna that. He says to Smyrna, be faithful to death. Be faithful. No matter what. If God comes and rescues you in the, in the final seconds before the sword comes down, hallelujah. But if He don't, you still don't get to change. You write it out. Faithful to death. And He says, I will give you the crown of life. I'll give you the crown of life. Keep your eyes on the prize. The Lord says, I know about all that stuff. I know about that. But listen, look at verse 16. A little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. So a, a, a righteous man with next to nothing is better than a wicked man with everything. Jesus talked about this too. You guys remember the, the story? I don't believe it's a parable. The story of the rich man and Lazarus? I don't believe it's a parable. He used a name. Jesus, when he tells, when Jesus tells parables, typically he says, there was a man. There was a servant. But in this story that some people call a parable, he says, there was a rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus didn't have nothing. He was righteous. Had a relationship with God, but he didn't have nothing. His relationship with God didn't have nothing to do with what he had or didn't have. You guys get that? He could be rich and have a relationship with God, but that wouldn't fit in the story. So in the story, he's saying, look, a rich guy has everything but nothing with God. 
A poor guy has nothing but everything with God. And they both die. And the rich man, they both go to Hades. Hades is a Greek word that simply means the grave. People get wrapped around the axle sometimes because I say there's nobody in hell. And they're like, what do you mean? Well, what we think of as hell happens at the end of Revelation. At the, the, the lake of fire. And the first two people in the lake of fire is the Antichrist and the false prophet. So they're the first two people in there. There's a thousand year reign of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And then there's a judgment of the living and the dead. And everyone whose name's not written is put into the lake of fire. So where are people now? Well, the Bible talks about in the Old Testament a concept called Abraham's bosom. Which was a, another phrase for the grave. That when people die, they went to a holding place. The righteous went to one side where they were waiting for the sacrifice of Messiah so they could go to heaven. And on the other side, in the, in the waiting area in Hades, you have the unrighteous who are waiting for the great white throne judgment. The Bible, when it talks about him, it says the rich man, he went to Hades and, the, uh, and, and Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man sees Lazarus. So that tells me that there's consciousness in that place. Right? The rich man goes, hey, I know that guy. He's on the other side. And he looks over and he says, Abraham, Father Abraham, send Lazarus over here so that he might cool my tongue. Now, I don't want us to think that the the, the phrasing that he's using, keep in mind, we're talking about poetic language. And the phrasing that he's using, he's saying, look, the 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 I'm in torment here. It doesn't mean he's on fire. It means I'm in torment. I'm waiting for judgment. And all I have to hope for is the lake of fire. Because I have no relationship with God. I've had no relationship with Him. I didn't follow Him. I didn't choose Him. I didn't want Him. And so I'm where I chose to be. So send Him over here to comfort me. That's how I read that. And Abraham says, I can't. There's a big gulf. We can't get to you. You can't get to us. So... He says, well, then send them to my brothers so that they tell them about this place so that they'll make the choices I didn't make. Well, Abraham says to him, they have the law and the prophets. If they won't believe the word that they have sitting on their lap, neither will they believe even if one was to rise from the dead. Isn't that what Jesus did? Rise from the dead. So the ultimate end for the wicked is to sit in a holding cell, if you will, until the judgment, until they see the judgment. Sometimes the worst punishment for me was dad saying, go to your room and I'll be up there in a minute to whoop you. And I sit in a room worrying about the whooping that was coming. Now imagine that whooping being 2,000 years away. That's a place of torment. That's a place of torment. So when we look at it, the, look, the, the wicked, he says, you look around, the wicked are going to be gone. They're not going to be anymore. You're not going to see them. The wicked, the wicked are, are ultimately, they're going to perish. But the little that a righteous man has is better than all those riches. Why? Because he has the Lord. All the other stuff doesn't matter. Your checkbook is not how you keep score. How big your house is, not how you keep score. You want to keep score? Keep score how much you love the Lord. That's a good way to keep score. How much I love the Lord. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. 
the arms spoke of the your ability to to uh, your personal might, your ability to take care of yourself. So the arms of the wicked being broken means they're not even going to be able to take care of themselves. They're going to find themselves in a place uh, looking toward judgment. But the but the righteous, God takes care of it. That's not about their arms. You get what I'm saying? There, it doesn't say their arms are strong enough to get them through. No. It says the Lord takes care of the righteous. The wicked are trusting in their own arms, their own strength, but their own arms will be broken. They can't save themselves. Only Jesus Christ, only the Lord is able to do that. He says, so the Lord knows the days of the upright. Now, I just want you to notice that the word days is plural. It doesn't say the day, it says days. The object, when we look at it, oftentimes when he talks about the wicked, he'll talk about the day of the wicked and the days, plural, of the righteous. The idea that he's trying to lay out is that the days of the righteous will be longer than the day of the wicked. When you are going to spend eternity with the Lord, that's longer. You get it? That's longer than the, than the temporal time that the wicked will spend. It says, and their inheritance will be forever, eternal. So what the righteous get is eternal. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time. They won't be disappointed. There will not be disappointment. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time. And in the days of famine, they shall be satisfied. I also want you to notice that word's plural too. So what does that mean? Certainly more than one day of famine. So if famine speaks of difficulty or hardship or tribulation or hard times, then there's going to be more than just one. You're going to face hard times. There are going to be more than just one hard time. But what's the point? God's going to be with you through it. Even though you're in famine, you'll be satisfied. That word satisfied does not mean, it does not mean that even though you're in famine, God's going to feed you and you'll always be full. That's not what it says. It says in famine, when you lack, you will have satisfaction in Him. He'll be your satisfaction. He will satisfy you. You may still go to bed hungry. But God will satisfy you. If He's the treasure, He holds that place, central focus in our life. We hold on to Him. He'll carry us through. But what's His word for the wicked? But, in contrast, the wicked will perish. And the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, will vanish. In the smoke, they will vanish away. Just like when they burn a field. They burn it, goes up in the smoke, it's gone. It's gone. The wicked will be gone. He says in verse 21 to the Lord, the Lord now he turns to, to, to talk about the fact that he blesses his people. Look, the, the wicked borrows and does not repay. I want to hear that. The wicked borrows and doesn't repay. But the righteous shows mercy and gives. Now the point is, the, the, the thing that marks the wicked is that they are always promising Right? That's the whole point. I borrowed, I'm promising to pay, but they don't follow through. But the righteous, he says, show mercy. They don't make a promise, they just give. They just give. They just see a need and, and, and give. For those blessed by Him, blessed by the Lord, shall inherit the earth. Oh, there's that phrase again. So we have the meek inheriting the earth. You guys remember, right? We have those who wait on the Lord will inherit the earth. And here we have... 
Those who are blessed by Him, blessed by the Lord, will inherit the earth. It's all describing or defining for us Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for the meek shall inherit the earth. So He's defining it all for us here. He says, uh, But the cursed by Him will be cut off. And remember that phrase, cut off, means uh, capital punishment. There, a judgment. Cut off means judgment. They'll be judged. The wicked will be judged. The righteous will inherit the earth. He says in verse 23, So the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. That means they're established. So the way that a good man, a righteous man, someone who's following the Lord, his steps are ordered or established by God. So if I'm following the Lord, when Jesus said, Come follow me, it's the idea, the picture of I'm stepping in his footprints. I'm, I'm following Him. I'm, I'm going where He goes. I'm being like He is. And what does He say about it? The steps of the good man are ordered by the Lord, and He delights in His way. It means He rejoices to follow Him. He's not, oh man, got to follow Jesus again today. Oh, that's just, what a drag. I go follow Jesus. Look at that wicked guy. He's having fun, but I got to follow Jesus. Well, if I keep following Jesus, at least I, maybe one day I'll get to heaven with that guy. I don't know. He, he seems like he's got it better off. Dude, if that's how you feel, you should turn around because the following you're doing ain't doing no good. The following you're doing ain't doing no good. It says he delights in his way. He desires to follow him. Look what it says in verse 24. Though he fall. This is what I want you to understand about that. It doesn't mean maybe he will, maybe he won't. It is a sta- it's an absolute statement. He will fall. So the guy following the Lord, the, the you and me and somebody else, when we follow the Lord, we will fall. But that's not the point of the promise. The point of the promise is what comes next. But he shall not be utterly cast down. Though we fall, we don't stay down. That's the true measure of a man, right? Isn't that what Rocky said in like Rocky 10? It's not, uh, it's not, how hard you can hit. It's how hard you can get hit and get knocked down and still get back up. That's what Rocky said. He's a man. I'm just saying. But the Lord is kind of saying the same thing. Though he fall, he won't stay down. Why? Because the Lord lifts him up. The Lord upholds him with his hand. He stands because of God's ability to make him stand. Not because of his ability to be good. We will never be able to be good enough. We are just going to follow Him and delight in Him and love Him. And when we fall, God will lift us up. God will pick us up. He'll get us back on track. He says in verse 25, how we know David was an old man when he wrote this. He says, I have been young and now am old. Right? No brainer. David. This is later on in David's life when he writes this. I was young once, but now I'm old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging for bread. The point, the Lord's presence has always been with the righteous. What did he say? What did Jesus say? I will never leave you or forsake you. Absolute promise of absolute truth. Though you fall, though you stumble, though you have problems, he'll never leave, he'll never forsake, he'll never give up. He will be with you. He'll be there. He will not forsake you. He is ever merciful and lends 
I like that. He is merciful and lends. He gives what we lack, what we need. And His descendants are blessed. His descendants are blessed because of that presence of the Lord being with Him. He even equips us for obedience. Look at verse 27. So He says, Depart from evil and do good, and dwell forevermore. Depart from evil. Turn your back on what is wrong. See that wicked guy over there? And life is going good for him. That's the starting line. Turn your back to the starting line and go the other direction. Go toward Jesus. Go toward Him. Do good and dwell forevermore. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake His saints. It doesn't mean His saints won't have a hard time, but God won't forsake you. He'll be with you. You need to know that if I have to go through something super hard and I'm afraid I won't be able to do it in the time, in the moment when you need Him, God's going to give you the strength you need to stand. Having done all, stand therefore. Stand therefore. God will give it to you for He is able to make you to stand. The Lord loves justice and won't forsake. For they are preserved forever. He's going to take care. Who preserves us? Who carries us through? Who gets us from the beginning to the end? Who keeps me? The Lord does. I don't keep myself. He keeps me. Jesus said, I'm holding you in my hands and nobody can snatch you out. My Father who is mightier than I holds you in His hands and no one can snatch you out of His hands. So the concept that He's laying out is He is the one who preserves us, who keeps us, who helps us finish the race that we begin. You, he will be with us. He will carry us through. But the descendants of the wicked are cut off. The idea of judgment again, right? They'll be judged, cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell in it forever. Oh, we have the meek inheriting the earth. We have uh, those who wait on the Lord inheriting the earth. We have those who are blessed by God inheriting the earth. And now we have the righteous. More descriptions of those who are blessed by the Lord who will inherit the promise that God has for His people. Now, the last part. The description of righteousness. He's going to describe it right now. What is righteousness? It says the righteous will inherit the land. What's that look like? Right here. The mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom, and his tongue talks of justice, and the law of his God is in his heart. None of his steps will slide. So what's he talking about? What's the blessing that God is giving through the righteous? His word is in their heart. What's he say in Psalm 119? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. So, so when I pour God's word in, what does it give me? It gives me words of wisdom. I'm able to speak wisdom. It gives me the ability to talk about justice. It changes me from the inside out. And it makes me righteous the righteous who will inherit the earth now he's going to talk now about god judging the wicked three sections as we close out this psalm first going to deal with a court a court like a court proceeding then he's going to talk about a tree and then he's going to talk about the rescue let's look at it the first part the court the wicked watches the righteous and seeks to slay him but the lord will not leave him in his hand I want you to hear what that implies. If it says the Lord will not leave you in the wicked's hand, that means you're in His hand. He's not going to leave you there. There will be a time when the wicked has control 
over you. When, when the oppressor has you in his hand, he won't leave you there is the point. God's saying, I'm not going to leave you there. The wicked wants to destroy you. Satan wants to, to see you destroyed. But Satan, while Satan may have opportunity to, to oppress in your life, God doesn't leave you there. He won't leave you in the wicked. He won't leave you in that place. Nor will He condemn him when he is judged. So God's not going to allow. There's no condemnation. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. When the Bible talks about condemnation, it's always talking about being removed from the presence of God. Wiped out. Taken out. Speaking of, of hell. You say, no, he's not going to go to hell. Even though the wicked judge him. Even though he's having his day in court and the wicked's getting ready to slay him. God says, I'm not going to leave you in his hand. I'm not going to leave you in that place. He's not going to be able to condemn you. So what's he say in verse 34? It's our favorite, it's our favorite phrase, right? Wait on the Lord. So the idea is you're in a court proceeding, you're losing, you're getting whooped by the wicked. God's saying, I'm not going to leave you in the wicked's hand always. He's not going to be able to condemn you. He's not going to be able to cast you to hell or, or remove you from me. I'm with you, so just wait on the Lord and keep His way. And He will exalt you to what? Inherit the land. Another commentary on the meek inheriting the land. So though you're under judgment, you won't be able to be separated from the love of Christ Jesus. Right? Didn't that say it in Romans chapter 8? What shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord? Shall death, persecution, he goes on and on, nakedness, peril, the sword. What are all those things describing? Exactly what David's describing in Psalm 37. That day in court when the wicked wins. But you stay faithful to the Lord. And He's going to give you what you need to get through. He's going to give you what you need. Well, it's not the end of it, He says. Because at the end of verse 34, what's it say? He, he, the righteous, the one who waits on the Lord and keeps His way, will inherit the land. But what happens? When the wicked are cut off, you will see it. Karat. When they're condemned. When their judgment comes. You may be judged by them now. You may be judged by them here. You may face that judgment on earth. But one day... God's going to judge them. And you'll see it. You'll see that day. Now he turns from court and he looks at a tree. I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a native green tree. Yet he passed away and behold, he was no more. Indeed, I sought him, but he could not be found. So though one time the wicked looked like this big, massive tree and it was, you know, just humongous. But then it shriveled up, it died, it fell over, it rotted and it's gone. And so the Lord says, that's how it's going to be for the wicked. The wicked will not stay. The wicked won't stay. Then he says in verse 37, he moves toward the rescue. Mark the blameless man and observe the upright. For the future of that man is peace. The future. So we're moving toward a promised peace. We're moving toward a promised fulfillment that, that we have in Christ Jesus. But... The transgressors, those who choose iniquity and sin, shall be destroyed together. For the future of the wicked shall be cut off. Again, the idea of condemnation, of judgment, of capital punishment. But, in contrast to the wicked being cut off, the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. And the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in Him.
God gives us what we need when we need it. You guys all remember the story of Corey Timboom, right? And she goes through this horrific thing during the Holocaust. And God uses her in, in mighty, mighty ways. But before she ever got to there and to that point, she's talking to her dad one day and she's saying, Man, I don't know if I'll be able to have the kind of faith I need to have if I, if I had to suffer for the Lord. If, if because of my relationship with God, I went into a time of suffering. And so her dad said, well, Corey, it's a lot like this. Here we are waiting for the train, but you don't have the ticket. I do. And when the train pulls up, I'm going to hand you the ticket. And then you'll have the ticket you need to get on the train. And it's the same way when you're going to face judgment of the wicked, or you're going to have your day in court, or you're going to have the time when you're oppressed, and you're going through hard times, and all that stuff's going on. You may not have the ticket now, but God says, I'll give you the ticket when you need it. I will take you through. I will strengthen you. I will take care of you. He will take us through it, or He will save us from it, but either way, our salvation in each instance comes from the Lord.